They nailed it again. I love that song. I just uh, saw it on the radio. I heard it on the radio a few weeks ago. Uh, she's got a great um, YouTube video. Ann Wilson's her name. Go to it. Uh, My Jesus, you'll get the backstory of what that song was about. Thank you so much, Ben. Praise God. On this Thanksgiving weekend, I know I'm like you, and I have so much to be thankful for. I thank God for my wonderful wife of 21 years, my two children and their spouses, and my 20-month-old granddaughter, Olivia. Here she is. Oh, yeah, me too. You see, I was uh, 72 years old when she was born. First grandchild, so she is special to us. Born premature, and God's been good to us. I thank God also for my parents who loved and served Jesus and for the assurance that I have in my heart that they are with him in heaven today. I thank God that I live in the greatest country in the world. America. I thank God for you, all of you, and the opportunity I've had for 13 years to serve here at Faith Fellowship. I could go on and on, just as you could, as you recall all the things you are thankful for in your life. We are blessed beyond measure. And it's right and good to have hearts that are overflowing with gratitude to our Lord, not just in the Thanksgiving season, but every day of the year. I wonder what you would say if I were to ask you out in the commons later, what is the number one thing you are most thankful for? Have you thought about that? Do you know what you would say? As for me, I would say to that question, I'm most thankful for my Jesus and my salvation over everything else I have in my life. In the song, My Jesus, there is a line that says, There is no sinner that Jesus can't save. Now, I know that to be true because I am a sinner that Jesus did save. The Bible tells us a lot about ourselves, and that's why some of us don't like to read it. But I believe one of the most profound things that it says about us is this. Please read it with me. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All is a short three-letter word, but it includes nearly 8 billion people on the earth today. All includes me and you. And everyone we know. Now this verse doesn't sit well with most of the earth's population. But God says we're all sinners. Whether we like it or not, 
whether we admit it or not. This is what God says about us. The Bible tells us that God instructed Adam that he could eat from any tree in the Garden of Eden except the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve, his wife, chose to disobey God's instructions. Just like children who are told not to touch some family heirloom, Adam and Eve made a beeline for the one thing in the whole garden that was off limits to them. Because of their decision, the entire human race was plunged into sin right along with them. Paul writes this, Adam sinned, and that sin brought death into the world. Now, everyone has sinned, and so everyone must die. The Apostle Paul here is not just referring to physical death. The Population Reference Bureau estimates that the number of people who have ever lived is 108 billion people. Now that includes today's population, which means about 100 billion people have been born, they've lived, and they've physically died since the time of Adam and Eve. Now only God knows how many of those billions of people not only died physically, but they also died spiritually. And they would have died spiritually because they did not have a saving relationship with God, and thus, consequently, they did not go to heaven. Because of the sin nature we inherited from our great ancestor Adam, we choose to disobey God and his laws as found in Scripture. Now, any one of you have children, raise your hand if you have young children. Did you have to teach your children how to misbehave and disobey? It just comes naturally, I think, out of the womb. You parents probably spend hours teaching and training your children how to overcome the natural-born inclination to misbehave and disobey. You see, the sin nature is in all of us. And when given the opportunity, we are prone to sin no matter what our age. God, in his mercy, has made provision through his Son to help rescue us from the sin nature. In referring to himself, Jesus said this, The Son of Man came to find lost people, and what is it? And save them. Since the Bible tells us that all of humanity is in the same lost sinful condition, 
We can fool ourselves into thinking that our own sin isn't really that bad. Now, come on, God. We compare ourselves with others, and we think to ourselves, I'm doing just as good or better uh, that guy I work with or my sister-in-law or those other students I go to school with. Now, I'm saying that may be true for you. But each of us, no matter how good you think you are, is still a long way from God and his glorious perfection found in Jesus. Suppose a person could somehow be good enough to end up just a few feet from the gates of heaven when they died. They are literally close. But are they close enough? Where do those people go? Well, they don't go to heaven. Because although they may be close, they are still outside the gates of heaven. And outside the gates is not inside. And being inside is all that matters. You see, being close counts in horseshoes. Anybody play horseshoes? You can be close and still get a point. Anybody play with hand grenades? Because being close counts with both those activities. And I hope it's just horseshoes for you. Being close doesn't count when it comes to being right with God and being saved by Jesus Christ and going to heaven someday. Before we become followers of Jesus, we can tend to think of ourselves as being close when it comes to a relationship with God and, and going to heaven someday. We assess ourselves. A survey found that 72% of Americans believe in heaven. Now, this is how the survey described heaven. It was defined as a place where people who have lived good lives are eternally rewarded. These 72% believe they are close and they're going to heaven based on how they are living their lives in the present day. Now, the problem with that, you can't back it up with Scripture. The Bible doesn't give us any indication that that's truthful. The truth is our sins have separated us from God by a distance that we could never measure or that we could less change on our own. Paul writes, when people sin... They earn what sin pays, death. But God gives his people a free gift. What is it? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, Paul is not talking about physical death. 
which will be experienced by 100% of humanity, but he's talking about spiritual death, which is eternally separated from God. I'm so glad Paul didn't stop with the word death, but the last half of this verse is a wonderful promise to those people who put their faith and trust in God's Son to save them from the ultimate consequence of their sins. We're told they would not be separated from God when they die, but they would have eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There was a man in the New Testament who asked the most important question that anyone could ever ask. It's interesting, we don't know his name, but we know his occupation. And he had been listening, he was at work. And he had been listening to Paul and Paul's friend Silas as they were singing worship songs to God deep into the night. And these two gentlemen were singing even though they had been beaten. And they were now chained to a wall in their jail cell. Because this man heard the message of those songs, we read this in Acts 16. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? If that man was standing before you and asked that question, how would you answer it? What must I do to be saved? Well, I hope you wouldn't just tell them, Go to church and you'll be saved. Or read through the Bible next year and you'll be saved. Or make donations to to worthy charities and you'll be saved. Or love your spouse, love your children, treat your pets well and you will be saved. Now these are all good things and I hope we all do them. They would fall under the category of living a good life. But none of these things I've mentioned were mentioned by Paul and Silas. They told the Philippian jailer the same thing that you and I should answer to that question if it's ever posed to us. They replied in unison, believe in the Lord Jesus and what is it? You will be saved. You will and your household, the influence of you being saved will go throughout your household. Friends, that is the one and only way to be saved and guarantee yourself passage all the way, not just close, but you're going to go all the way to heaven when you die. There it is. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Jesus had confirmed this about himself earlier when we read this passage in John 14, 6. Famous passage, you all know it. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. Next line with me, please. The only way to the Father is through Buddha. Oh, for is through Muhammad. Is through Pastor Damon. We know that's not true, right? Is <laughs> through me. Jesus was saying that if any one of us wants to be with God the Father when we die physically, and we're all going to die, that person will have to have a spiritual connection, a spiritual relationship with Jesus in this life before they die. There is no reincarnation. There is no second chance. You got to do it while you're still breathing. So let me repeat it. Jesus was saying that if you or I want to go to heaven to be with God someday, then we will have to have a spiritual relationship with Jesus in this life before we die. So that raises another question. If salvation is based on us believing in Jesus Christ as our Savior, how do we know that we have truly believed and we have faith to be saved? The word believe has many different nuances. For instance, if I say I believe the Green Bay Packers are going to play in the Super Bowl come, I guess, February, that's nothing more than a hunch I have. It's a better hunch than some of you have. If I say I believe George Washington was the first president of the United States, that's based on a settled historical fact. If I say I believe in Jesus to save me, forgive me of my sins, I have made a different statement altogether. The faith that saves us starts with the knowledge of the facts of the gospel message. And then it moves from there to conviction of the heart. And then finally, it ends with a trusted commitment of our will. I want to look at each of these elements that define saving faith. Knowledge refers to the factual basics of the Christian faith. You and I must know something in order to be saved. If it's just the little bit that the Philippian jailer knew, we must know something. The gospel, also referred to as the good news of Jesus Christ, contains information that we need to know. Now, you and I aren't saved just by information. But we can't be saved without having some information about the gospel, about Jesus Christ. Suppose you're in a burning building and you can't find your way out and you yell, where is the exit? And although you can't see anyone because of the smoke, you hear someone shout out, 
Go down the hallway, go down the stairs, the exit door will be in front of you. Now, are you saved from the burning building because you have some knowledge of where the exit is located? No. You must still act on the information you have been given to find your way out of the building and not die in the burning inferno. We aren't saved by just knowing the truth about Jesus, but we can't be saved without knowing that truth. Got to be clear on this point. Christian faith is not blind faith. It's not a leap into the dark. True saving faith rests first and foremost on Jesus Christ. We must know who he is, why he came to earth, why he died and rose from the dead, and how he can be our savior. And I'm not suggesting that we have to take a theological examination in order to be saved. But we must know something about the truths concerning Jesus if our faith is going to rest on the right thing. Knowledge is essential, but it can never save you or me. Saving faith begins with some knowledge, but it never ends there. The second element of saving faith, conviction of the heart, means to have knowledge about something and then be persuaded it's true. The most common word in the Bible for believe means to have confidence in and then to regard as reliable. The Hebrew word, when you bring it over into the English, becomes the word amen, which literally means, yes, it's true. Saving faith involves saying amen or yes, it's true, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. A woman may go to the doctor who tells her that the recent test results show she has cancer. But the doctor says, there's good news. We have recently discovered a drug that can cure you. In fact, it's worked on all my patients with your particular type of cancer. And he asked her point blank, would you try, like to try using it? And the woman said yes. Now, is she cured of cancer? Sitting there before the doctor in his office? No, she's not cured. Not until her confidence in this new drug is such that she allows them to put it in the IV that will send the life-saving medicine throughout her body. Her decision to use this drug comes because she has a heartfelt personal conviction concerning what has been revealed to her about it. There's one final element in saving faith besides knowledge and personal conviction. We must have a trusted commitment of our will. We might 
use the word trust in the sense of relying upon something, such as resting your weight on a chair. And let me assure you, this will hold you up. That's a heavy chair. But I've been places where I kind of looked around and thought, will this hold me up? Can I trust a chair to hold me up? Faith always reaches out to rest upon something or someone. If we go to a doctor, we must rest our faith in her to help keep us well. If we go to a mechanic, we must rest our faith in him to repair our car. Saving faith always ends in trusted commitment in someone or something. The Bible summarizes all of what I'm trying to say in one verse. That is why I'm suffering as I am. This is written by the Apostle Paul. Yet this is no cause for shame because, what's the word underlined? I know whom I have believed and am, underlined, convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. I know, I am convinced, I have entrusted. It's all there. Knowledge, conviction, and trust. It's a wonderful picture of this in the last book of the Bible. We read about Jesus. He's standing at a door and and he's knocking. It comes from Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus offers to enter a physically, or excuse me, spiritually lukewarm and pathetic church. It really was a pathetic church. And he promises to have fellowship with those in this lukewarm church, spiritually lukewarm, who would choose to open the door of their hearts to let him into their lives. And this is how Jesus comes to people wherever they may be in their spiritual journey. And it also helps us see the three elements of saving faith that I've been talking about. We hear, not audibly, but we sense through the message, we hear Jesus knocking. That's knowledge. Hey, somebody's knocking. We go to the door to welcome Jesus, and that's a personal conviction. And then we open the door for Jesus to come into our lives, and that would be trusted commitment in Jesus Christ. It's only after we do all three does Jesus come in and make himself at home in our spiritual hearts. It's a little children's course from years ago that goes like this. One door and only one, and yet its sides are two, inside and outside, on which side are you? Question for all of us this morning. On which side of your heart's door is Jesus? 
Is he on the inside through that saving faith relationship that you have with him? Or is Jesus on the outside still knocking, still waiting for you to open the door of your heart to him? If Jesus is knocking today, I encourage you to not put off receiving what you will be most thankful for as I'm most thankful for your personal salvation with Jesus Christ. So I say to you, go to the door. Let him in. He wants a relationship with you. And maybe you're here this morning, didn't expect to hear a message like this on Thanksgiving weekend. But you've never opened the door of your spiritual heart and your spiritual life to Jesus. But the Holy Spirit is tugging at your heart. You want to do it today. Well, in a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to say a prayer. And I want you to know that saying words in any prayer doesn't save us. The words we're going to say together, those who choose to do so, they're not going to be the thing that saves us. Only Jesus can save us. But a prayer can be a means of reaching out to Jesus in true saving faith, stepping across the line, making that personal, heartfelt conviction, turning it into a trusted will. So maybe you want to say the words with me. I'm going to say the words. It could be that it's a recommitment for those of us who had that saving relationship with Jesus. For others of you, it may be a, a first-time commitment. It may be the first step of your new life with Christ. So I invite you to say it. You can say it audibly. I'm, awesome. I'm going to say it. You can say it uh, under your breath, whatever you want to do. But let's say it together. Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and that I can't save myself. By faith, I receive your gift of salvation. I am ready to trust you as my Savior. I believe you are the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. Please forgive my sins and give me the gift of eternal life. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and be my Savior. Amen. If you would like information on what you should do now, if this is your first time commitment in Christ, and even if it's a recommitment, we have a wonderful tool for you. It's a little booklet that are found in our two literature displays in the commons. And the booklet is called, What's Your Next Step? It's about 25 pages wonderfully written, and it will help you as you begin your next step of faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, I have so much to be thankful for on this Thanksgiving weekend. I have been blessed beyond measure, but Lord, I am truly most grateful and most thankful for the fact that you saved a sinner such as me. 
And Lord, I know because my confidence is in the word of God that when I die, I will go all the way to be with you in heaven someday. Not because I'm good, not because I deserve it, not because I've done anything in this life to make me worthy. It's all because of you, Jesus, and your wonderful sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. So, Lord, I believe there's been one or more people in this place today that have made a first-time commitment. And I pray that you will help them on this new life journey with you. And those of us who've made a recommitment, Lord, help us to keep fighting the good fight of faith and staying the course as we live all the days of our life for Jesus, not knowing when you may call us home. Find us faithful. Find us serving you. Find us loving you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. There'll be a prayer team right here in the front. And if you have a prayer request, a need for anything, please come forward. God bless you. See you next week with the new series.